This is the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. Today's podcast is the beginning of a three-part series with Sue Pearson. Sue Pearson has been part of the model of education that we use here at Clayton Bradley Academy for many years in all kinds of different settings of schools. We're going to be discussing the body-brain compatible elements that are highlighted in the new book, Exceeding Expectations. And so now we join the podcast with Sue Pearson. We'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Sue Pearson. Sue has been involved in the model that we use here at Clayton Bradley Academy, the what we now call Learner-Centered School, uh, previously called Highly Effective Teaching, and, and I think previously to that, Integrated Thematic Instruction. And so Sue has been part of it through all of that, uh, as she has helped write the books that uh, we use as part of our model, as well as um, has helped in trainings and different things like that. And um, Sue, have you ever been to the school? No, I have never been to that school, but I've been to ones close by you. Okay. I couldn't remember. We had a team come in a couple years ago, and I couldn't remember if you were in that team or not. Um, but we want to welcome Sue to the podcast, and I'm going to give her a little chance to kind of introduce herself to uh, the listeners this morning. So, Sue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, you already heard my name, Sue Pearson. And I should share with you one of my famous quotations. Teaching is my vocation, my avocation, and my vacation. (laughs) No matter what I do, I seem to be involved with teaching. Um, I started a long time ago, and I started in an inner city school with 11 children and switched to a rural community where I had 42 second graders. That was an interesting year. Oh, wow. Um, and then, yeah, and then I switched to Catholic schools eventually uh, because it was closer to my house, so we only had one car. <laughs> so <laughs> that was what I did. My husband was a teacher, too, so we can kind of have a lot in common that way. And let's see, what else should I share with you? Well, I met Susan Kowalik. Actually, the sisters in the Catholic school where I was were having a conference, and they had never invited so-called lay people before, and that year they invited us. And I went, I listened to Susan, and I went up to her afterwards, and I said, I've been doing all this, but I never knew it had a name (laughs) or that it was anything that was already created. And she said to me, I think you're going to work for me someday. (laughs) So that's kind of how it started. Um, I've got to work in 42 different states over the years, and I've done other presentations too besides schools, like to banks and to some businesses, just teaching them about the brain also. So it's been kind of an interesting journey for me. Yeah. You know, my, my wife is also a teacher, not here at the school, but at, at one of the local public schools, and it's funny, uh, when you've got two teachers in the family... Um, you know, there's a lot in common there, but sometimes it, it means that everything seems to be about school all the time, like you said. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and you mentioned... Well, when, so- I, when, I went, when I went to the interview to work in the rural school, my husband already taught there, only we were just engaged at the time. And they said to me, well, how did you find out about our district? Because it's so far away. I grew up about five blocks away from the Bronx in New York City. (laughs) And I said, well, I have a friend working here. And they said, oh, who's the friend? And I named him. And they said, how good a friend. And I said, well, we're engaged. 
And they said, well, what would you do if somebody was talking about him in the staff room? And I said, well, I might agree with them. It would depend on what they were saying. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and you mentioned Susan Kavalik. Susan Kavalik is kind of the founder, I guess, of this model. And um, she you know, has been involved in writing these books and that sort of thing and, and really did a lot in education all around the world. Um, with this model and and so whenever we talk about what we do here at Clayton Bradley we're not talking about something that you know we've just kind of created as we've had some maybe discussions or read a book or two this is something that's been practiced in various countries it's been used in both inner city it's been and rural settings it's been used in uh, public settings it's been used in private settings it's been used in charter settings and so it's not a model that we just kind of come up with and and uh, have generated out of a couple conversations it's really something that has a lot of background and research and time spent in making this model what it is um, and that goes into the topic that i wanted to talk to you about for this podcast uh, there's various models uh, or parts of the model that we could discuss uh, but one that we haven't talked a lot about on the podcast are the body brain compatible elements and the new book that we're working on you're also one of the authors um, we just got done with a series that we had interviewed um, Karen Olson and uh, she discussed the uh, process of how the brain learns and did an awesome job in kind of breaking that down and laying that out and in the book the next part of the book then talks about the body brain compatible elements and how those uh, should be implemented and the power of those in the classroom and so the first body brain compatible element is absence of threat and creating community and so why don't you give us a little bit of background on that and then you know talk about how you've seen that used in in various settings uh, throughout your teaching career i think i have to thank my fifth grade teacher mrs craig because when we were back in school she started sitting us in groups now this was a long time ago in a public school with probably 39 or 40 kids in a class and she actually put us into groups and I fell in love with it. And my group was a Yankee group because I was in with all the boys. So <laughs> that's my, that was my first experience with it. And when I started using it with the model, I tried to find innovative ways to create the groups. Like sometimes the students had to solve puzzles. And when they put the puzzles together, like jigsaw puzzles, and they had the names of the groups the students that were in the groups on them. Other times I did them through codes and everything. So that that kind of built the idea of a group right from the start. And yeah. they it gave them something exciting to look forward to. I also each time asked them which groups, which students they hadn't been with before or which ones they wanted to be with. And inevitably, there was probably one child that was never chosen by the others. Mm. But I could make sure that that child got in with someone he he or she chose so that they never really knew that they hadn't been chosen. And that was more at the beginning before the whole school started doing the life skills and the lifelong guidelines. Um, once the whole school was using them, it was much easier to put students into groups and I think it really helped with new students when they came because they were assimilated in with a group that already had an idea of what was going on in the classroom and they could share that with the new student. So I have always used the learning clubs 
um, and been excited about them. But that was pretty much how I put them together. Mm-hmm. And we know that that, you know, we talk about the, the key to everything really that happens in the classroom is relationship. And so that building that community, how are we creating community to say like this is an intentional thing that that has to be discussed and it has to be done it can't just be left to chance it can't just be a you know sit kids by you know the alphabet or whatever in rows and and hopefully they'll learn but we know what the brain research says is that um, when they have relationship and they have community then their brain is in a better place to learn and understand the concepts that are being discussed and so that first part of saying how do we get a brain to have that feeling of absence of threat exactly what you said of we start right from the beginning with relationship we start right from the beginning with community how can we help a kid feel like they're part of uh, the classroom they're part of the the culture that's happening in the classroom they're part of the groups or whatever may be the case it's not just collaboration although it is collaboration but it's it's bigger than collaboration it's that feeling of connection and um, that you really are a valid and valuable part of what's going to happen in this classroom this year? Well, I think they need a sense of belonging, a strong sense of belonging, especially with so much going on on the social networks behind our backs sometimes. And we may have a student who's being bullied, who's being threatened. And I think building this sense of community makes them feel safe to a point where their brain can learn. Because if the brain doesn't feel safe, it's not going to learn. Right. And I think the life skills and the lifelong guidelines lead us into that kind of sense of community. I always started with friendship and Mm. working on understanding what it is to have a friend, the kind of actions and behaviors you need to use to develop a friendship, and how you can help others maybe a new student in the classroom, how can you help them to become part of this group? Right, and when we're looking at that idea of absence of threat, because it's all about where the brain is at in in understanding how they're able to learn. And so we want their energy, the blood supply of the brain to be directed towards the frontal lobe while that's being developed in youngers. And, and we know now that the frontal lobe is being developed well into their 20s. So uh, when they're in the classroom, we want the blood supply to be focused on the areas of the brain that are trying to learn and not the uh, fight or flight response, right? I mean, that fight, flight, freeze or fawn response of I'm afraid or I'm, I don't know what's going to happen, so I've got to protect self. And so we want to uh, generate that kind of uh, feeling in the classroom from the very beginning when they walk in. That absence of threat includes everything from the teacher welcoming them as they're walking through the door to uh-huh. helping assign them to the right groups to, to how we target the uh, lifelong guidelines and life skills of how we target talk those as far as how we're discussing it. Like you said, you know, being strategic and saying we're going to start with friendship maybe because that's so important for us to understand in our classroom to making sure that, that we're encouraging kids to use that language as well so that they understand um, the life skills, lifelong guidelines, and how they apply, what they look like. All of that goes into creating that community and building that absence of threat. And, and it's even simple things that, that we do in the classroom that uh, sometimes people don't think about, but putting an agenda on the board. You know, sometimes that's one of those of like, oh, okay, they want me to put an agenda on the board. But we talked to our teachers about the reason for putting an agenda on the board is because how many times have you been in a classroom and kids walk into that classroom and they go, 
or are we going to do anything today? You know, and and sometimes that comes off a little jerky uh, <laughs> from the kid. Um, it's like, no, absolutely not. We're not doing anything today. Um, but it's the reason behind that is the brain is trying to figure out what's going on and whether they need to protect self or, you know, it's kind of that fight, flight, freeze or fawn response of, of how much energy am I going to put into protecting self right now? And how much energy am I going to be putting into being part of this community? And so stuff like an agenda on the board, um, you know, paying attention to what does the what what does the room smell like? Um, you know, are there things that remind them of home life, maybe where it's maybe plants or rugs or or couches, comfortable seating, you know, simple things like that help the brain to be in a better place uh, to learn. And all of that goes back to that community that you were talking about. And it's really awesome. Um, when you think about some of that, uh, Sue, how are some of the, how have you used some of that in, uh, your time in the classroom and in time in, in training, uh, other educators? Well, I have always had plants. I was careful about my use of color. I really limited that to maybe three main colors. I also was careful about how much I put on the classroom walls. I put up what we were using at that time so that students could really focus on that. I did enjoy using the agenda and we reviewed it every day at the end of the day so that when the students went home and their parents said, what did you do at school today? They couldn't say nothing. They had a list <laughs> of things that they had done that day and they could share that with their parents. Um, one year we took some time to decorate the student bathrooms and we put in some little wall decorations and everything. And the next morning, I had two mothers at the classroom door asking if they could go look at the bathrooms because the kids just thought they were wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing to me how much you can do just like you said, with the environment. And it, it, starting the first day of school, I start sending home positive notes to parents. And I had one mother come in um, from an interesting class that I kind of had been looking forward to. And she came in the second day of school. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what did I do? What's wrong here? <laughs> you know, it's only the second day of school. And she said to me, I wanted to thank you. This was in fourth grade. She said, I have never received a positive note about mm. my son before. Wow. And so by me sending home that note, just a little note saying that he had had a great day, I was glad to have him in my class, we already started on a different relationship and perhaps a different year for that child. Yeah. And it was really a pretty good year. And that's another part of the model that you know, sometimes, like I said, people don't think about all the things that go into this um, element of our instruction. But the home visits that take place, uh, you know, our teachers do home visits uh, in the summer. Um, and then some as the kids progress, those turn into coffee shop visits with parents and that sort of thing. Because when we're saying creating community, we're not just saying creating community in the classroom like it's this standalone thing. We're recognizing that there's a community of the teacher to that kid's parents. Maybe it could even be that kid's grandparents. You know, some, you know, a lot of grandparents are very active in uh, in the kids' lives, and, and so, uh, and in a lot of schools, the grandparents are even raising the kids, um, or even great-grandparents raising the kids, depending on, you know, the, the situation at home, and so the teacher making sure that they're reaching out, trying to build that community, even with the parents, um, 
in in this part of the element. It's not just what happens in the classroom because if you can create that broader community of parent to teacher, of teacher to student, of student to student, then you really are getting all of the good things that come out of that community and that sense of belonging um, for the instruction then to take place. And if you've built relationships right, the content delivery is a whole lot easier. Sometimes this relationship can be very difficult in the sense of what children tell you. Because I have had two girls report sexual abuse. And I had another one who came to me just a few years ago, um, very upset with things that were going on in her house. Parents were getting a divorce, things like that. And if they know they can trust you, and at least tell it to someone. Not that I'm always able to do something, although I do try. Yeah. Um, but I think that they really, they really can find a safe place to come to, if they have to. Yeah. And so to me, that was very important. Um, and when we had a substitute coming, a guest teacher, as they were called, when we had one coming, we always had guest teacher procedures, and it was interesting one year because. We had a guest teacher coming who had come to our school quite a bit and then she had stopped because she had difficulties with one particular class, which happened to be the class that I was having that year. <laughs> and so I told the children who was coming, she said she would come back and everything. And two of the girls that lived near her actually went to her house that day and welcomed her to the classroom. Oh my goodness. And said that it was gonna be a great three days. I had to be in Arizona for something. And so they went and welcomed her and they had their procedures. They showed that they showed her what they were and she came in and she had a great three days. But that was because of those two students reaching out to her. Wow, what a testament to those two students taking on that initiative too to to you know to try to do something special for that teacher to help them feel welcome and and you know the procedure element once again that's another thing that we do in our classrooms that is connected to this absence of threat and creating community of helping students understand what's the appropriate way to respond in certain circumstances and sometimes you know that 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 can be looked at as like oh well you're you know you're you're uh, being you know maybe too uh informative or you're being too, you're given too much guidance but we know that the brain whenever it knows what the expectation is it knows how to act and respond appropriately then and so that's the goal at least is that if we teach the right procedure then the brain knows kind of the rules to play in and if it knows the rules to play in then the brain can then kind of relax and get into that frontal lobe and and thinking and learning phase because it knows that what I'm doing is within the boundaries of what I'm allowed to do. And so that's why when you walk into our classrooms here at CBA, I mean, we talk about that with our teachers all the time of what procedures do you have posted? Where are they posted? Are you referring to those procedures? Um, I remember my when one of my kids was in um, second grade, our teachers loop for first and second grade. So they the goal is that they have the same teacher for two years uh, with the same class. And uh, it was near the end of the second grade year and the teacher was bringing everybody to the carpet uh, to do a community circle carpet activity. And before everybody moved, the teacher once again re reminded everybody what are the procedures that we're getting ready to follow. And it's like they, she has had this class for two years 
every time they come to the carpet, they did the same, you know, stop and remind procedures. But, you know, and here you go, this is at the end of the second year, like, man, surely they've got it. But by her taking just a minute to talk about the procedures, whenever everybody got moved, you're talking about second graders, but they all went to the place they were supposed to go. They knew where they were supposed to sit, how they were supposed to sit, how they were supposed to interact with others. And it really reduced down behavior problems almost to where they didn't exist. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you never have a behavior problem then, but it really just put a calm atmosphere in the classroom in a time that was going to be chaotic. You've got kids getting up out of cl- out of seats and, you know, that's the time that maybe a kid will walk over and get a drink or that's the time maybe somebody's kind of wandering around the room. But not in this case because she had reminded the procedure. All of their brains knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing and they followed that procedure and it made that transition point a whole lot smoother. And so that that understanding of we've got to set clear procedures, you've got to remind those procedures, you've got to use those procedures, you've got to point back to those procedures when they're not being followed so that it helps set the boundaries of where their brains need to be. And in this case, you know, like you said, you had a, a, a class that had not maybe treated this, this guest teacher the way they were supposed to, but when given the right procedure and when talked about and when made clear, now that experience was a lot better. Well, we have to remember that procedures are, we want them to become a program and they are a pattern to begin with. And we have to keep going through that pattern until they understand it and can apply it to the situation. And they may forget sometimes if they're involved in something, you know, very vocal or whatever, but that's the time to bring them back to the procedure again. Yeah. And if there are some that the students can help write, it's even better. Absolutely. Getting that student involvement, because then there, there becomes that ownership of why are we doing okay. it this way and, and that you had input. It kind of goes back to what we talk about with the brain loves choice. And so with everybody in the room being able to give input into that and see the reasoning behind that procedure, now everybody is, is on a better page of following that procedure. Uh-huh. I would agree with you totally. And I also think that leads into reflective thinking. Absolutely. Because you're actually, you're taking some time there for students to actually think about what they've done. You're giving them a pattern to make that kind of situation better the next time, and especially better when they're adults. This has been the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. If you'd like to find out more about our school, you can find us on the website, www.claytonbradleyacademy.org, or on social media sites, at CBA STEM or at Clayton Bradley Academy. We hope you have a wonderful day.